All right, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would bless the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth, that they would be holy, pleasing, and acceptable unto you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so today is the second Sunday in Lent, which is a season of preparation, and I would say a season of paradox. Like Advent, which is the season that marks the beginning of the Christian New Year, the season of Lent also is a time of preparation, but again, in paradox. Lent is a season of preparation that traditionally begins in the wilderness with Jesus, 40 days of fasting during his testing and his temptation in the wilderness. And throughout church history, the season of Lent has always been a sort of invitation for the church to accompany our Lord on a long walk to Jerusalem, a walk that begins with him in the wilderness and ends with his death on Good Friday. And therein lies the paradox, the paradox of our preparation. Lent is a season where the church prepares for the death of her Lord, but not without hope. We prepare for the death of our Lord in the hope of the resurrection. However, we can't get to Easter, right? We can't get to that Easter celebration without first journeying through Lent. And so to help us better understand Jesus' wilderness experience of temptation and testing, which we will look at in depth in a few weeks' time, so just stay tuned. Come back, please. I believe it is important for us to reflect well on the wilderness experiences of God's people throughout the story of God within the drama of Holy Scripture. Because it's within the drama of Holy Scripture we discover the story of God within the story of our own lives. Although each story is varied and different, they all share the experience of vulnerability and exposure the experience of wandering and wonder, the experience of isolation and being found, being seen, heard, and blessed. Though the wilderness is a... ...shows up. It is the place where God reveals God's self, where God is found and where God finds us, the place where God is near, where God is with us, and where God is for his people. Amen? You can say amen. Amen? All right. Come on. We can be a little Baptist. All right? It's okay. Um, so in our Old Testament lesson, this evening we encounter, and our New Testament lesson, we encounter the story of, of Moses. The story of Moses, right? The story of Moses is a story of formation. It's a story of formation and a story of faithfulness. In other words, the story of Moses is a story of how God's faithfulness forms a person and a people in and through a lived confession of faith that is founded upon the fulfillment of God's purposes. That's a lot of F's that I just put together in one long sentence. So let me say it again. The story of Moses is a story of formation and faithfulness. A story of how God's faithfulness forms a person and a people in and through a lived confession of faith. 
founded upon the fulfillment of God's promises. In other words, the story of Moses and that of God's people in Exodus is a story that is characteristically confessional in nature. God delivers his people from Egypt. Put simply, God is our deliverer. God is faithful. This is the original confession of faith of God's people that appears and reappears all throughout the drama of Holy Scripture in every age, then and now. And I think it's vital to note that the confession that God is faithful is not just a verbal one. It is a lived confession of faith. For Moses and for the people of God, Israel, in both word and deed, their lived confession of faith begins and ends in properly identifying who God is and how God is, who God is in the story of their lived lives. God is faithful. Not only is this the original confession of God's people, but also it is the beginning of what I would call a theology of God rooted in confession and from which doxology comes forth. God is our deliverer. God is faithful. Is woven through all the Psalms, throughout Holy Scripture, throughout the entire canon. So out of everything you hear come out of my mouth and my heart tonight, there's one thing I want you to write down. There is one thing I want you to commit to memory daily for the rest of your lives. And it's this, that God is faithful. God's faithfulness forms a people of which you and I are an essential part. God's faithfulness constitutes God's people. Who and how God is has everything to do with who you are. God is faithful. So the story of Moses is a story of formation. It's a story of faithfulness. And the story begins in the book of Exodus chapter 2 with the birth and the call of Moses. So for context, Exodus means exit. The word Exodus means exit or departure. And within the first few chapters of Exodus, we encounter multiple departures. The first departure is actually in Exodus 1, verse 6, with reference to the passing of the old generation who came with Joseph into Egypt. Not only had an older generation died, but 400 years had passed in, the, in Egypt that they once knew, the Egypt that once held promise for Israel was no more. This was just a distant memory because now in the present, as we learn in Exodus 1, verse 8, a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing was in power. And out of fear that the Israelites had grown great in number, he used his power for evil. And he acted quickly to prevent them from increasing even more through means of oppression and genocide. 
Like last week, we encounter yet another story of human futility. In fact, the story of Exodus falls between two major narratives of human futility, where two different kings, two different empires, are attempting to thwart God's plan to fulfill God's promises to bless the seed of Abraham. The first is here in Exodus chapter 1 and 2 with the Egyptian king, and the second is over in Numbers 22 through 24 with the Moabite king. But this is not what God intends. Ironically, providentially ironically, throughout the entire Exodus story, the more that human futility increases against God's blessing, the more God's people increases. So what is clear here is that God is at work. God is already at work in the people of God's lives, way before Moses shows up. What is clear is that God is at work in the wilderness. The people of God find themselves in And nothing or no one, no matter how great, can stand in the way of God's faithfulness. In the uncertain and chaotic world run by a maniacal king, God continues to bless the increase of God's people by raising up Egyptian midwives to shelter newborn babies. In the uncertain and chaotic world run by a maniacal king, God prepares a deliverer for his people by providing an ark in the water through which Moses is saved, hearkening back to an older narrative. By sheltering Moses in Pharaoh's own household, God prepares a people in what seems like a very uncertain, dark, and chaotic world. He prepares a people for deliverance as he's preparing a deliverer for his people. In the midst of despair and desolation and death, God is at work. God is faithful. When everything and all at once seems utterly hopeless and utterly dark, God is at work work, preparing a way in the wilderness through which those he will soon call out must journey again, yet with difference. Now, I find it extremely striking that God prepares and calls a deliverer from within the wilderness to prepare and call his people from a wilderness to enter into another wilderness through which they will be brought to a land of promise. But this is the way of God. This is the way of God, too, where God in the person of Jesus Christ enters into the wilderness for a time of preparation and from which he journeys through many wildernesses along the way to a final wilderness called Golgotha. God in the wilderness, God in the darkness. Light and life. God is faithful. And God prepares a deliverer for his people. In Exodus 2, 11 through 22, in short, Moses grows up and we find him face to face 
with the injustice that has come upon his people. In what seems like a moment of intense rage, he acts out in a futile attempt to avenge the blood of his people and to put an end to the oppression he walked in upon. And so he kills the oppressor, he frees the oppressed, he looks all around, and he buries the dead guy in the sand and goes on with life as normal. But it only takes a day for it all to catch up with him. Because the next day Moses goes out and he sees two Hebrews fighting and he says to the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man looks at him and says, who died and made you boss? Oh, I know, that Egyptian you killed yesterday? That's right. And so out of fear of others finding out what he had done, Moses flees into the wilderness where we find him at a well. And it doesn't take too long until Moses comes face to face with another injustice, whereby he intervenes and somehow successfully fends off further injustice, which results in the hospitality of a foreign family from which he will eventually take a wife. Now, on the surface, it seems like a good short story filled with a bunch of action. You know, like it's a couple of fights, murder, rage, and a happy ending. It's a good Netflix action movie. But there's more than meets the eyes, because don't forget, God is preparing a way. God is preparing a deliverer. And we can see in Moses a heart for justice, both for his own people and for others. In both cases, we read that Moses sees injustice and responds. For Moses, indifference is not an option. And I do wonder, I do wonder if Moses had a conviction that inaction makes him complicit in the injustices he witnesses, especially in the first case. Now let me be clear, I I'm not trying to make a moral case for Moses. I have three ethics degrees and can basically justify anything, but I'm not trying to make that moral case right now. In fact, this is a move I cannot take. It's a move I cannot make, nor will I. To be honest, I think this is a tragic part of the story that actually challenges faith in so many ways. And it's something worth our further consideration. So you'll just have to take my Christian ethics course I hope to offer as a part of a catechesis program in the future. Just stay tuned. You'll hear about that at the AGM. But we do see Moses' heart for justice. And what is interesting about Moses' actions is that in so many ways they foreshadow the continuing role of Moses to follow. What is interesting about his actions is that in so many ways, it's foreshadowing what's to follow. Not only will Moses soon discover he will be the conduit through which God will rescue his people from oppression and injustice, but also, like his rescue of the daughters of Ruel and the provision of their sheep, Moses will soon lead God's people out of Egypt. He will be the one to secure and provide water for God's people and flocks within the same wilderness he is now so familiar with. Exodus 17, 6, and Numbers 20, 7 through 11, detail this in great detail. The significance of all of this is that in and through these events, God is forming a person and a people 
a deliverer, little d, through whom God, the deliverer, will deliver his people. Picking up in verses 23 through 25, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This God is the God who sees, the God who has seen and sees. And God hears the cries of injustice. God is concerned. God is faithful, which is to say God is on the move. And he's on the move to fulfill his promises. In their pre-wilderness wilderness, the people of God find a voice. And God listens. God remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God's remembrance here is very interesting because it's more than just a mental act. It includes the performance of God's word. And the first performative act of God is God remembering his covenant and his call of Moses in the first ten verses of Exodus 3. So deep in the wilderness, we find Moses at Horeb, a desert place that literally means desolation. And in our Acts reading... It's an alternate name for Sinai, which actually means the place of unknown, where God will make himself known and makes himself known here in Exodus 3. So deep in the wilderness, we find Moses at Horeb, where he is shepherding the flock of his father-in-law. Moses, in this place of uncertainty, encounters what can only be characterized as an unusual phenomenon, a burning bush that does not burn up in which God dwells in unapproachable light and from which God reveals the essential nature of himself as the one who is with us. There is so much significance here about the holiness of God in worship. In fact, God's holiness, as we know, is a central theme, pars pro toto, which means it's a theme that represents the whole of Holy Scripture. The whole structure of worship of God here is based on the view of God as absolutely holy other, yet one who dwells in their midst. And throughout church history, many figures, many traditions have said that what we encounter here is a foreshadowing of what's to come with the tabernacle where God, who is holy other, dwells within the midst of God's people. So what are we to make of God telling Moses then? Do not come any further or do not come near as some translations render. Well, do not come near or any closer does not mean that God is not near to us. Even though Moses is instructed to stand at a distance, within the broader narrative of the Pentateuch, and we learned this last week, that the first five books of the Bible is called the Pentateuch, and they were intended to be read as a whole. So in light of the broader narrative, we know that Moses speaks to God face to face in Numbers 12.8. So the significance with all this is that God came 
down that God comes near. And it is in and through the mundane fabric of daily life, the ordinary, that God comes near and God reveals himself. God chose a small and seemingly insignificant burning bush as the means of his self-revelation. God chooses Moses, a seemingly insignificant shepherd with so many limitations, might I suggest even a physical disability as the one with and through whom God will deliver his people. God chooses the wilderness through which his deliverer would be prepared. God will choose the wilderness again through which his faithfulness will begin to form his people. God chose the mundane and the very ordinary ground on which he stands, the very place that sheep and goats travel and trotted, and he makes it holy. Every moment, every moment within the quotidian fabric of daily life, God is able to set it apart, lift it up, bless it, and make it holy. Even you and I, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Spirit of God? The significance of all of this is that God shows up in the wilderness of life and he comes near. Redemption is near. And God's redemption will not be the provision of an escape from a wilderness, but rather a deliverance from and through the wilderness as God intervenes within the events of human history and God joins himself with his people there. For he says in 3.12, for I will be with you. So how does Moses respond to all this? How would you respond to all of this? With four objections. <laughs> Who am I? What is your name? Uh, what if they don't believe me? Have you seen me? I'm disabled. As Moses thinks of all the reasons why God had chosen the wrong person for the job, God patiently listens and God patiently responds to Moses' objections. So in verses 11 through 12, Moses asks, who am I? And while Moses may have reason to doubt, the text seems to suggest that Moses' question, who am I? It's not a question of doubt or fear per se, but more a question that emerges from a heart of humility. It's more like, really? Like, why me? Personally, I believe that Moses has learned a lot through his life in the wilderness. That living as a foreigner in a foreign land, we encounter him here in a different way. This Moses that we encounter here does not seem like the rash, same guy we read about over in chapter 2. This self-assertive, eager to play the role of a self-appointed deliverer. Here we encounter a Moses who has grown in wisdom. Maybe his vocation in the wilderness has taught him many things. Like many shepherds we encounter throughout Holy Scripture, here we encounter a humble Moses who is highlighting the fact that there is a measure of inequity between himself and the mission God has for him. 
After all, Moses is seemingly insignificant. He's a shepherd living in the middle of nowhere, at the far reaches of a desert wilderness, hanging out with a bunch of sheep and goats. Also, shepherds were the one group of people the Egyptians despised. They preferred not to deal with them. In fact, they were an abomination to the Egyptians. We learn this in Genesis 46, 34, when Joseph tells his family what to say to the king of Egypt. They were detestable. They had no official recognition. So I think Moses rightly raises a valid objection to God's call, one which will be met in a very way in the not-too-distant future when Pharaoh says to Moses, so tell me who you are again? So Moses' question of himself, it actually anticipates Pharaoh's questioning of him. Yet with God, all things are possible. Amen? You're getting better at that. Moses' vocation in the wilderness, I think, is precisely the reason God has chosen him. What is ultimately to come to pass is that God will shepherd over his flock in and through Moses, a shepherd, and through many other shepherds until the good shepherd arrives. In this way, Moses' call is a call to faith. And the sign of fulfillment that God gives to Moses is in verse 12. Look, where God says, when? Not maybe, but when? When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship on this mountain. Moses' call to faith is grounded in God's faithfulness. God is clear, I have come down, verse 8, and I will be with you, verse 12. God is faithful. So Moses then says, well, what is your name? Verses 13 through 22 is the dialogue where the encounter of engagement occurs between God and Moses. The second objection Moses offers is one regarding God's identity, which along with his third objection about the possibility of no one believing him, I think can be read together as an expression of ambivalence. Moses asks, what is your name to which God responds, I am who I am. I am sent. On the surface, it might seem that God is playing hard to get. <laughs> that is, that God is trying to evade the question. It's like, come on, you know who I am. Which is often, if I'm honest, or always the most unsatisfying response that no one likes. Yet there's much more going on here. In many cultures throughout the history of the world, and in particular the ancient Near Eastern cultures like the one Moses belonged to, names are very significant. Names were the expression of the very essence of the one who bears the name. As I shared with our children last week and tonight, our names actually matter. You know, last week we encountered how this played out in the story of Hagar, Hagar, which means forsaken or flight. In Moses' culture, names express the nature of its bearer. Another clear example of this in Holy Scripture is over in 2 Samuel chapter 25, verse 25, regarding a man named Nabal. Nabal was a wicked man 
who, according to the text, is just like his name. In fact, the text goes on to say, his name means fool, and folly goes with him. So what is being implied here is that Moses understands the task before him and doesn't want to get it wrong when he comes to naming God. Moses understands that he will have to name God rightly. And by naming God, I mean identifying not only God's identity, but also God's character. So as a side note, naming things rightly is actually the way we make meaning in this world. From the beginning, humanity has sought to make meaning of the world that they inhabit, and we've done so through the use of language. In Genesis 2, verses 19 through 20, God tasks Adam the animals. In naming the animals, Adam would begin to exercise his God-given capabilities, determining the relationship with which humanity had to other creaturely life, and thereby putting them into a place in their world. So by naming the animals, Adam opens up, orders his world all through naming. In naming, Adam is bearing witness to the divine emplacement of other creatures within created order, whereby he articulates the role and purpose and relation of all creaturely life among God's creatures and before God. So naming things rightly is constitu constitutive of what it means, I think, to be human and to become fully human. So there's a presumption working in my head and my heart right now as I'm explaining this, and it's that understanding actually occurs in calling things by their true names. So when Adam named the sheep, sheep, he did not simply discover the word sheep, as if the term sheep existed as some a priori simple or sound independent from the world. Having understood a, a ruminant, woolly-coated creature as sheep, Adam included it in his imagination, in his life, as a help to his life. So the inclusion of sheep in the shape of our world was made possible through Adam's use of language. Adam's naming was more than some mere means of just communicating things. It was more than just saying, saying, that is, sorry. So through the use of the word, Adam, in the image of God, spoke as God had spoken. His word was the continuation of the word of God within space and time. So through the intermediary of speech, Adam's naming has an effect on the world. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name, Genesis 2, 19. And just as God said, and things were so, Adam's naming brought order to his sphere of life where he represented each animal to God, conferring on them a way of life to fulfill before God. So in naming the animals, Adam involves himself in the interplay of creation where he attributes to each animal its actual position and role. So theologically speaking, why does all this matter? And how does it relate to Exodus 3 and who are you? 
Well, naming is an exercise of a God-giving initiative. In naming the animals, Adam discerns the essence, the essence which God had already fashioned in each of them. An essence that plays a determinative role in their naming. In naming the animals, Adam witnesses to the relation between the spiritual source of reality, God, in its physical manifestation. So how we name things in this world matters. How we name things in this world has purchase on our perceptions of and our actions within the world. And this truth is expressed in the way Adam's naming of the animals reveal the beauty of God's creation, the place and the role other creaturely life plays in relation to the whole of creation. So in this way, Adam's naming of the animals was a faithful act of obedience, witnessing to God's authority over his life and the lives of all creaturely life. Such witness attests to other creaturely forms of life and how these forms of life witness to God's creative activity and purpose with creation. So when Moses, and that's just with animals, right? We're, not, we're talking about God now, right? So when Moses asked God for a name, it was a question about the essential nature, the essential character of God. It was an inquiry into naming God rightly, which only God can do. And God's answer to Moses is precisely the answer to his question. I am who I am, who I will be. It is I who am with you. God names his person. God names his character. God names his authority, his power. God names his redemption. God names his name forever. I am with you. The one who promises to be with his people is sending a deliverer to them. Beloved, redemption is near. The name God gives himself is intended to convey that he is a God who is present. Not only because he has promised to be with his people, but because he is a God who is present with his people. And what we discover from here and on out is that God is true to his name. God has and will continue to watch over the people of God. God has seen and God has heard. God has promised and will promise and God will fulfill God's promise and God does fulfill God's promise. God does all of this in the wilderness. And God continues to do this in the wilderness of your life and mine. Our God is a God who has come near. A God who is for us. A God who is with us. A God who sees, who hears, who listens, who responds. A God who is concerned for you, who loves you, 
who cares for you. A God who is familiar with the wilderness of your life. Who enters into the darkness and the desolation of your life. And shines light and gives life so that you can be light in life for the life of this world. This is our God. His name is Emmanuel. God with us. He is the great I am who is and will be. It is he who is with us. And if and when you feel forsaken, and if and when you feel lost and isolated and scorned, sisters and brothers, take comfort in knowing that you are chosen, that you are blessed, that you are sought after by the one who fills our bellies with loaves of mercy and comfort and grace. God is with you even now. For me, the beauty of these stories from the wilderness is that sometimes we think or feel that we can't see God. And I think it's probably because we're not looking low enough. God is in the wilderness of our lives. God is not far from us. God has come near. And the best news I can share with you is that God loves you. God is faithful. Amen. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness, for your love, and for your grace. And I just pray, Lord, that you would cover us in the truth of who you are in the story of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would bless us and that we would be blessed and live in light of the blessing that you are, who and how you are, that you would come and shape and form us to be your people, to be light and life in this world. Lord, we love you and we thank you for loving us. Amen.